0: Good morning, everyone. Welcome to day two of Bible study. Uh, This is my second and final day. Uh, And uh, it's been great to be with you yesterday. Thank you for uh, your attention and and your responses. Uh, If you were in the morning service yesterday, you heard Steve Schellen refer to the letter that is sent to the evangelist. And as I was thinking about the issue in 2 John, where uh, it's an issue of traveling teachers, Probably the closest equivalent to that, at least in my experience, are those who come here as evangelists. And so uh, I want to pray, and then I want to share with you another part of that letter that was sent to Steve uh, and to Bert this year. Well, let's pray. Lord, thank you for this day and for our time together. Blessed by your presence, as you always do. Open our ears that we might hear what you have to say to us through Second John. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Now, Steve referred to the part of the letter that addresses the morning service as the stalwarts of Psyker. The next line says this, It is both our purpose and our continual aim to promote scriptural holiness in both doctrine and practical living. It is our intention that all the preaching done from the platform at Psyker is aimed in that direction as well. I'll also let you know that the very next line is, while we do ask that you try to conclude the service within 60 to 90 minutes, we always seek the following. Uh, we always seek to follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. And so that will give you an idea of how long the evangelists are supposed to go. And I guess if they go over 90 minutes, then um, you can always refer them back to this letter. But the point I want to make is this: that it's our purpose and our continual aim to promote scriptural holiness, that that is what we're about. And so in light of that, I want to to share with you, when we go through that process of determining who will come as an evangelist, that's what we look for. That's the criteria that we use. And many times, and and I'll use this year for example, we've had Steve Shellen here before. We know the high quality of Steve's sermons, uh, of his personal life. uh, And so when it comes to bringing Steve here, it's a very easy decision. You know, he's well known to us. Now, Bert is here for the first time. Now, Bert doesn't come simply because I knew the name. I did some vetting of Bert Jones. And so I listened to the other camp meeting presidents. Um, you know, it, it's. It, I want to bring the veil down a little bit because I think sometimes as a board, You know, you don't get to be part of the meeting, so you don't know everything that goes on. One of the things we do is that the camp meeting presidents get together. Maybe the the picture, if you remember the movie The the Godfather, when the mafia dons came together. It's not exactly like that, but, you know, we get together in in one room, and, and inevitably we get to that point where we start to say, well, who have you heard? Who are good preachers, who are good evangelists? Uh, who can stay within a 60 to 90 minute time frame. These are some of the things we look for. And, and so when it came to BERT, I began to ask the other presidents and, and to do research. In Second John, they didn't really have that opportunity. No doubt there was word going around as to who were good teachers, but they may not have had that opportunity. And, and as I said yesterday, they were in this place where there's this conflict between values. They had the value of hospitality. You know, it was something that was part of the culture, but in the Christian church, they said, this is mandatory. We have to do this. And we need to be marked by this great sense of hospitality. I was so pleased this morning when I talked to uh, Steve at breakfast that he mentioned the great hospitality he's experienced here at Syker. And, you know, as the, the, the president of the board, I'm, I'm thrilled with that. But the other value... Is a teaching of doctrinal truth. And in Second John, that was the issue. They have these teachers coming who have departed from the gospel as they understood it and as they had received it. There's some indication that this was the beginning of what we know as Gnosticism, you know, which said all material things are evil. And so how could Jesus Christ as God take on human flesh? be taking on evil. And so they denied the incarnation. And we get to that issue this morning in the passage that we will look at. But I want us to understand the conflict that they're facing and the internal conflict. You know, and maybe we don't experience this in our churches or even in the camp uh, to the extent that perhaps they did, but I want us to understand that still is a reality for us. To look at do the people we bring to speak at Syker, are they preaching scriptural holiness? Are they living it out, as best we can tell? And so we enter into that. So I want to encourage us to look at Second John verses 4 through 11 first, and then we will deal with the, the final greetings if we have time. Let me read this to you. John writes, I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I am writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves. So that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever, Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works." A visiting teacher could come to the church and claim to be a Christian, missionary, or prophet, but they taught what was clearly false doctrine. Now hospitality demanded that they be made welcome and be provided for, but to do so would appear to be supporting the ministry and supporting what they were teaching. And so that's the issue that we're facing in Second John. Questions like Should he be received or not? What if he asked for money? What if he overstays his welcome? How long should this be tolerated? In fact, there's a, a, an early document in the Christian church, uh, one that we know as the Dedicate, that gave three rules or three tests for a traveling evangelist. It said this. Does he teach the truth? Does he stay more than two days? And does he ask for money? Now, I wonder... Obviously, we're always looking, how does this apply today? So I'm wondering now, should we tell Steve and Bert after, Steve, you've been here two days. If you stay on, what do we do? Now, obviously, we want Steve and Bert to stay, but we begin to understand that they had these rules, these directives, and they, by them, began to test are these suitable evangelists? Are these people that we want to come and to teach us? And we see this delicate balance in 2 John between openness and hospitality and wisdom to protect this church family. Behind this is this always present challenge that even we face of discerning truth from error, of distinguishing false teachers from true servants of God. And I think what we see here in 2 John is that the test of truth And error is this test of Christian doctrine, particularly as it relates to the Incarnation. And so as we dig into the first part of this uh, in in verses uh, 4 through 6 and and then 7 through 11, I think it it is divided up that way. With verses 4 through 6 really speaking to that doctrine within. What is the truth within that we hold to? And then 7 through 11 is more how do we practice this? And what, what are the... Criteria, what are the tests that we use to determine this is truth and this isn't? Ultimately, I think it comes down to this question. When does tolerance become tragic? I believe when we look at our culture, and and yesterday uh, when we talked about some of the issues that face us in the church today, we talked about this battle sometimes between worldview and biblical view. I think often what we find is that the greatest value, or what is valued most in culture right now is tolerance. We need to tolerate or or be tolerant of all things. Our culture calls for tolerance of backgrounds and beliefs and conditions until it doesn't. And I want to give you this example. This came out of the Biloxi Sun Herald just a few days ago. They have uh, an issue in Biloxi, as many communities do, around the contents of the local library. And a pastor there uh, came and asked them to remove certain books, and this was the response that was reported in the newspaper. Leah Campbell, president of Mississippi Rising Coalition, is a community organizer and LGTBQ activist who attended the board meeting and said the fighting wasn't done yet. We are here to support the library as an inclusive and diverse space that is welcoming, accepting, and affirming of everyone. We support this church and this pastor's right to hold whatever religious views they hold, but those beliefs and ideologies need to remain in the church and not come into the public space where diverse thought and diverse ideologies need to be supported. And I think that is reflective of our culture. You can have your religious beliefs, you can believe whatever you want, but keep it there. Don't bring it into the public space. And it seems to me, if tolerance is something we're going to practice, and forgive me if I slide into preaching, but if tolerance is something we're going to practice, then should there not be tolerance of even religious beliefs? And so that's what, in a sense, we come into here in Second John to some degree. As I read this, what I get, and I, I, and I hope you, you see this as well, that John, in a sense, says, I've got good news and I've got bad news. Now, he begins with the good news. He says, I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. As I said yesterday, it, it, this probably is a, a situation where members of this church have come to John and, and they reported on the condition of the church, reported on their faithfulness, on what they're doing there, and John, in a sense, says to them, I want you to take this letter back to the entire church, and he expresses this joy at seeing them living out the truth, and it's something that he assumes is generally true of the entire church. I think when we read, particularly this first section of verses four through six, where John gets into celebrating the good news that they are holding to the truth. And then he says, I want to give you this commandment. It's not a new one, but rather it's one you've heard before. I think often we see truth as a set of statements that we believe in. I'm in the midst right now in our, our local church of taking people through a membership class. And in a couple weeks after we finish here, we will have a membership Sunday. And I will read certain statements to them and say, do you believe in in these things? And obviously they respond, yes, I do. And we bring them into membership because they give consent or assent to these statements. And we say, well, that's the truth. That's what we believe as a church. But is it possible that, in a sense, what we see here is that Truth really is something beyond just these statements. The truth is beyond just these wonderful statements that we have sent to and say, yes, I believe all these things, that really it's something more than that. That in John 14, 6, Jesus says this, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And what's interesting is the word that John uses for truth in John 14 He uses again here in 2 John, where he talks about them holding to this truth. That really what we get here is this, truth is not this concept. It's not simply a set of propositions or even a personal experience. The truth really is a person. That our experiences and our feelings, as legitimate as they might be, are still subjective. But what we find is Jesus is constant. That he's our reality. And what John is establishing here in Second John is that we have this constant, and it's Jesus Christ. And so we hold to that. When I was uh, coaching track, and I, and I coached 7th and 8th grade girls track, um, and let me say, if you've never coached 7th and 8th grade girls, it's a new world. And there were experiences, yeah, uh, I mean, they were experiencing things that were just outside of my realm. But I I remember teaching uh, some of these girls how to run long distance. You know, when I was in high school, I I ran long distance, so I knew how to do that. Uh, And I would tell them, when you're running, you you know, the first lap, you feel energetic, everything's going great, then you hit the second lap, and, and, you know, if you run the mile, it's four laps. It's very easy to start losing focus. So I said, when you come around the track, find a focal point. And in the track that we ran on most times, there was a flagpole. And I said, keep your focus on the flagpole. And as you run, keep that in line. Because that's not going to move. That flagpole is going to be there. Every time you come around, it'll be there. And it became this thing for them to focus on that point. And really what I believe second John says to us in to the church of that day was focus on this point. Focus on Jesus. And when things come in that, di- uh, that distract you, get your focus back there. And it's really not something new that he was saying to them. He said, we've been saying this all along. He says, because we have this truth, we hold on to it. And because he, we hold on to this, he says this, I now ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. I had a conversation very briefly with Todd and Barbara Charles, and we were talking about this concept and this idea in... Second John, of the singular versus plural use of you. And Barbara shared that in Spanish, all of those references, where it's dear lady, elect lady, are plural in nature. And so it just reiterates, he's not talking to one person there, he's talking to a group, to this whole church. And he's really urging them to live in the same way as those who had come before him and had spoken with him. And he calls them not to something new, but to continue living out what they have already received. When I was in college uh, at Malone, my dad would send me a letter every fall. And in the letter, he would remind me of these things. He said, you're in school to learn. You're in school to gain education, to gain experience. And he would say the same thing every year. And then he would put a Latin phrase, in it. My dad went to school at a time when Latin was taught, but I didn't. And so you would always put this Latin phrase in, and it was different most years. And I asked him later on, why did you do that? And he said, because I knew then you would go to the library at least once, because you'd want to know, what am am I saying? And and so, you know, obviously pre-internet, I couldn't just Google it. Had to go to the library and look it up, and he would have this Latin phrase. And one of them was time flies. And it was that reminder you have this time in your life to do this. I'm not telling you something new. I'm telling you the same thing I've told you throughout your life. Take advantage of this opportunity, take advantage of the education that Malone, at that point, Malone College offered. And that's what John is doing here. He says, it's, it's not something new. I want to remind you of your foundations. I want to take you back to the things that you build on. And this call to love one another is so familiar in John's writings, and it's still a command given to the church today. And this is a call not to an emotional response, but to active caring for others. I think what we find here is that it's not surprising that when I act in loving ways towards others, that I develop feelings of affection for them. And so this is not just love one another in a generic sense. It's truly develop these feelings or the sense of affection for one another. Now, we know that love can mean many different things. You know, I can say I love coming to Camp Syker. Does that mean I have an affection for Camp Syker? Yeah, in this case it does. Now, does that mean I love everything about Camp Syker? Well, now that's a test of my love. What this calls us to is, in this case, love means living according to God's commands. Jesus once was asked, what is the greatest commandment? We know his answer, well, love God with all you are and love your neighbor as you love yourself. But what if that's not enough? What if it's not enough to say, Love your neighbor as you love yourself. The first part I think we find kind of easy. I mean, is it difficult to love God? I think in many cases, that's not the challenge we face. It's loving one another. You know, I occasionally will say in whatever church I'm serving, I know we're perfect here, but I've been in churches that were imperfect. And I found people that were hard to love. And I remember once being challenged that, to ask yourself this question. When you look out at your church and you think that person is hard to love, how many people are saying the same thing about you? Saying you're hard to love. Loving God, maybe it's not the greatest challenge we face, but it's loving the people around us and loving them well. So in this case, John is saying, I'm giving you the same command Jesus gave you, love one another. When Jesus talks about that, and he tells his disciples to love one another, he gives them this incredible example of that. What if I find it hard because I'm an introvert to love other people in the way I love myself? What, what if I'm egotistical? How do I love others the way I love myself? All this is to say, what of loving myself really out of my own experience or my own truth is different than living out of the truth of Jesus Christ? And I think that's why Jesus says he gives us a new command, something above and beyond loving others as we love ourselves. We have that example in John of Jesus washing the disciples' feet. And he serves them dinner right before his crucifixion. And he says to them, so now I am giving you a new commandment. Love each other. it's interesting, he doesn't say love each other the way you love yourself. What's he say? Love one another as I have loved you. And he totally changes this thing from I'm not loving you The way I love myself, but I want to love you the way Jesus loves you. And it seems to me that when I love like I love myself, it it can all be about feelings. But when I love like Jesus, it's a choice. If you put yourself in the place of Jesus at the Last Supper, what's the likelihood that your first thought is going to be, I'm going to wash the feet of these disciples? And maybe it's just me, but my first thought wouldn't be if I knew I was going to be crucified, washing feet. Maybe that shows the great gap between me and Jesus, but Jesus looks at it differently. When I love myself, it's about holding on to my desires and my rights, but when I love as Jesus loves, it's about giving up my desires, it's about giving up my rights. And I think that's what... And in a sense, John is calling them too. So he gives them this picture, this new commandment, this vision of what life can be like and what love can be like. And he says, love one another. And the way you do that is to love like Jesus, to live out the commands of God. And so what we see in this section of verses four through six is really this call to walk according to the commandments of God. Again, it's not something new. It's something they'd heard from the, they, from the beginning and that they should continue to walk in it. And it's at this point that John, in a sense, kind of shifts. He's established the doctrinal principles. He's established this truth within. Live this way. Walk this way. Love one another according to the commandments of God. But then he shifts in verses 7 through 11 and says, this is how we put it into effect. And I think it raises this question, when does tolerance go too far and become damaging to people? John isn't tolerant of those who are leading the church astray. I like think what we see here is he gives them really two instructions. See them as deceptive and antichrist. Expose and resist their heretical teachings. And really, when you look at verse 9, it's John's shot at those who believe they had run far beyond others in the depth of their Christian belief. In in verse 9, he says this, everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. And so what we see in verse 9 is this picture of of what the teachers, these false teachers are teaching. They're, They're telling them, It's all right if you are just kind of at a superficial level of Christian belief. But when you progress, when you really get ahead, you're going to understand this. You'll give up this whole idea of Jesus coming in the flesh because the flesh is evil. And so Jesus would not, as God, become human flesh. He wouldn't take that on. And so once you advance past that and you start to understand the deeper wisdom Of God, then you give up things like the incarnation. You give up these foundational beliefs because you've advanced beyond. And John says, listen, if you're talking about advancing beyond, pushing ahead of everybody else, you've lost out. Because if you're teaching that and and that's what you believe, you don't have the Father and you don't have the Son. And if you don't have that, what do you have? And I think John would say you have something other than Christian belief. And so what we see in verses 7 through 11 is really this claim by John or or this push to establish the incarnation as reality. Then we get into verses 10 and 11, where he says, If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked ways. Now, in normal circumstances, hospitality was expected. Let me ask you, and I'll ask you to respond to this. When you think of hospitality, what are some of the elements of that in our culture, in the way we think? What are some of the elements of hospitality? If I'm coming to your house, how are you going to extend hospitality to me? A meal. What else? Anything else? Make you feel like one of the family. Comfortable. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So we have these elements of hospitality. Now, in that day, they would have understood it very similarly. You come into my home, I'm going to wash your feet, I'm going to try to make you feel comfortable. So serve a meal, do all this. We know that's part of that culture, and, and certainly it was a part of the Christian culture of that day. And so we have this value of hospitality that normally was extended to these traveling teachers. But this is an emergency. And so what was normal was suspended. And I think what we get in Second John is this sense that the church is in danger. He says, so the way we normally operate is not going to work now. And so he says, give them no platform to speak, no church leadership position, no opportunity to confuse new converts with false doctrine that's disguised as a legitimate expression of Christianity. I want to ask you this, and again, I'll ask you to respond. Do John's harsh words seem inconsistent with his repeated admonition to love one another? Sam, what do you think? No, I don't think it does. Okay. Okay. Okay, so the loving response is to say we're not going to give you a platform, we're not going to extend hospitality to you, right? Okay, so picture that in the modern church. How do we exercise that in the church? What do you think? Yeah, Dale, go ahead. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. Mm mm-hmm okay okay so whereas john's words might sound very pointed we don't necessarily believe they're harsh okay anybody else want to weigh in on that yeah go ahead Mm-hmm. hmm hmm Mm-hmm. 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 Right, right. So we set those lines and move on. Yeah, Heather? Mm-hmm. Sure. But we have to represent God's love and to pray for the whole that they come around the truth. Okay. Do we give them a hearing in the meantime? No. Okay. So we say, you, you're, what you're teaching is out of line with what we believe, so we're going to sideline you for the time being. Is that correct? Okay. Todd? Mhm. Right, and talked about how they're saying basically keep your beliefs in the church, mm-hmm. and they've lost tolerance for us mm-hmm. as Christians. Sure. But they expect full tolerance. Mhm. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. And you're you're, you're absolutely right. It's addressing those who are coming and and coming in leadership and saying, you know, I have this mark of approval. I have this whatever it would be that allows me to to teach and to be in this place. So yeah, it's coming out of leadership. It's coming out of those who have that teaching ministry. So let me muddy the waters just a bit. Are any of you good Wesleyans? Now I'm not talking about Wesleyan church, just good Wesleyan believers. Any of you? All right, great. So you believe what John Wesley says, right? John Wesley said, and we tend to uh, appeal to this often quoted statement by John Wesley. He says this, though we cannot think alike, may we not love alike. May we not be of one heart, though we are not of one opinion. Without all doubt, we may. Herein, all the children of God may unite, notwithstanding these smaller differences. And we use this as an imperative to preserve unity at all costs. So, let me go back to that question. In light of what Wesley says, is John being too harsh here? I mean, is this a smaller difference? It's just a difference of opinion. Aaron? I really don't think so at all. Okay. -hmm. If you go back to uh, the Gospel of John, where Jesus is teaching in the Demons, and he says, Very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, the Spirit gives birth to spirit. uh, Then you should not be surprised if I say you must be born again. Well, to be born again, that means you must have been born once. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Tomorrow, then allowing that lie to propagate and repopulate is not helpful. Mm-hmm. Right? If you are allowing that to continue, then what you're doing is actually letting these people walk away from the Exactly. Yep. Yeah, and I and I hope we get that point in this, because that's exactly I think what John is getting at. What we hear here is In the case of this church, this compromise on the incarnation, it began there. Christ coming in human flesh would have crippled their future ministry, as well as put their souls in eternal danger. And I think when we talk about maintaining a doctrine in the church, we talk about maintaining a doctrine even in the camp. And let's be honest, the way we identify, and and this has been a discussion on the Camp Cycle Board, the way we identify even holiness preaching and what is scriptural holiness has somewhat changed over the years. Now I want to share with you and, and again I just want to be transparent. When I was a kid growing up at Syker, scriptural holiness looked like this. You didn't wear shorts. And I can remember being on Tractor Crew with the beloved Ken Keene. This man of great, great sensitivity and, and graciousness. But Ken told us, hey, the rules are, you, you've got to wear jeans. You can't wear shorts when you're working. And, and that, was, that was the rule. So I associated scriptural holiness with what I wore, the things I watched on TV or didn't watch, and very many outward things. And, and that was what I associated with scriptural holiness. That if I was going to be a person who was committed to holiness, then I was going to look this certain way and I was going to act a certain way uh, and, and, you know, the whole thing about, you know, especially when I was a teenager and starting to date, you know, I don't go with girls who drink, smoke, or chew. No, that wasn't, I, you know, so if I was holiness, I wasn't going to be around any of this. And I think what has changed at least, and maybe it's, it's been in my mind and, and, and more so than in the way we define it as uh, a camp, is this inward change the heart. That I'm perfected in love. And, and I know we, we, we tend to shy away from the, the thought of perfection because of what we associate with it, that we associate flawlessness. And, and yet I think even the way we have defined what is scriptural holiness preaching has gone from is very strictly doctrinal and, and says the very same things that you know those who have gone before us have said and we begin to appeal to the heart and to that change that comes. And it's a beautiful thing. And, and, and so I think when we talk about doctrine, we talk about these things that are foundational to us, and we hold to them, we hold to these doctrines, but perhaps we tend to shade different elements of it at different times. John's fear is this progressive nature of denying the Incarnation. It says if you deny the incarnation, then it's very easy then to deny the place of Jesus Christ in a person's life, which then makes it very easy to deny his ability to change us, deny the Holy Spirit's ability to cleanse us and to make us new people. It's somewhat like if you've ever played the game Jenga, you know, and you pull the block out, and the whole goal is if I keep pulling these things out, I don't want to be the one that lets it collapse. But when we play that game doctrinally and say, well, we're going to pull this out we don't. we no longer need this and the house is still going to stand and our faith is still going to stand, we keep pulling them out and eventually it all crumbles. Now that may be an oversimplistic uh, way of looking at it, but I think that in a sense that's what John is getting at here. And really it becomes this question, how do I greet a person in Christ who doesn't believe Jesus was the incarnate word? How do I go and have fellowship with this person. You know, and I think we experience that in the modern church and, and even in the modern camp because we have people who will come in who will have different beliefs. And how do we experience that? And I'm not talking I'm talking within the realm of Christian faith. And where do we draw the lines and say, okay, this is you've shifted over into something that is not in line with what we believe. And so I began to think about what are the compromises or what are the issues that we face in the modern church. And so you will have this one Jesus was a good man, but he wasn't divine. It's one of the realities that is sometimes preached that Jesus is a way, but not the only way. That Jesus and his teachings, we offer them as a cure without acceptance of him as Lord. We say, come to Jesus, and he's going to heal you, but we leave it there, rather than saying, come to Jesus, and he's going to heal you, but he's not going to stop there. He's going to do this work in your life that's going to transform you and change you and make you a new person, but instead, we'll stop short and just offer Jesus as kind of like a palliative. We deny the problem of sin. We sentimentalize the cross. We blend Christianity and nationalism. And so we deal with some of these compromises in the modern church. Let me open it up. What are some of the other ways, and, and I don't want you to name your church, but what are some of the other ways that we can compromise the gospel? We can pull those foundational blocks out. Heather? Sure. Mm-hmm. hmm um, yeah. Okay Okay, Okay,. Yeah. Tanya hmm okay. Sure. hmm Okay? Sure. Yeah. yeah. So authority of scripture can be one of the, the, the areas we deal with, okay? Mhm. 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 Okay. Okay. Yeah. Good. What else? Mhm. else? If John were writing to the church today, what do you think would be the prevalent issue he would want to deal with? If it's these traveling teachers and and false doctrine, what do you think if John were writing to the church today, what would be his prevalent issue? Human sexuality would be a big one. And, And how do we deal with that issue? How do we speak the truth in love? all of like it says the sufficiency of scripture mm-hmm. because it's not just that topic. Sure. It's all of any time you want to pick and choose mm-hmm. what is okay to be preached and what is true and what is not. hmm okay, okay. All right. Good. Anyone else? She, um, Barbara said that, the, and, and it really echoed what you had said, Tanya, about the sufficiency of scripture and preaching the fullness Um I remember being at Asbury Seminary, and uh, I don't know if this is still Asbury's motto, but it was the whole Bible for the whole world. And I can remember being in preaching classes, and professors uh, saying, you will find it easy to preach the topics that are, appeal to you, but we want you to teach the entirety of Scripture. And that was great when I got to the Gospels and Paul's letters. Man, you get bogged down in some of the Old Testament books. I thought, what in the world does Leviticus have to do with Clinton County, Ohio? But the more I studied, the more I got around people who, who had greater knowledge, the more I understood the applicability. What else? Okay. Had our own space, hmm yeah. Sure. And for me personally, one of my favorite books in the Bible is the short little snippet of the back. hmm Because when God says, sorry, the back, you're not going to become me. This process, he's not going to become me. But it's my process. So sure. I did substitute complacency for the back. Sure, sure. Mm -hmm. So it's hearing that voice of the Spirit calling us into a deeper experience, deeper level, to not be satisfied with, I've gone as far as I want to with Jesus, but hearing that voice of the Spirit, and I think we've heard that in the sermons so far, haven't we? This idea of being open and responsive to where the Holy Spirit is leading us. Well, I'm going to take us through the last couple verses, this final greeting that John gives to the church there. He says, though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face-to-face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. I imagine that most teachers and pastors know the feeling of verse 12. In essence, I'd much rather explain this to you face-to-face so that I know you understand it. We find that probably conversations go much better when it's face-to-face. I know in, in my experience as a, a pastor, when we have had difficulties or, or we ran into an issue, to be able to speak face-to-face with someone uh, was so much better than any other method. In you know, and, and one hand, because of my personality, it's easier for me just to preach the correction from the pulpit and, and then kind of slide out the side door. The hard thing is having those face-to-face conversations and yet that's what John wants with them because he understands and and I I love this, our joy may be complete of being together and speaking face-to-face. Ultimately, I think the commands of 2 John are, are pretty clear. Walk in the truth. Love one another. And that these two are not mutually exclusive. To walk in the truth and to love one another is ultimately what John wants this church to live out. And so what we see here in this short book is this call very briefly, very quickly and pointedly to love one another by maintaining the truth. I want to open it up. We have just a couple minutes. Any thoughts, any questions, anything that you want to say that you didn't get a chance to say about 2 John that you want to be sure we get a chance to talk about. Right?
1: Mm hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. About you are, Mm hmm. The way my parents raised me was, you know, the kid, you know. Just right. The right. You know, mm hmm. You know. It wasn't right. I don't know. Mm hmm. Mm -hmm. As you got older you had to discern for yourself and figure out what was Mm -hmm. the truth and what wasn't so much. True so I think it's more a personal relationship that you have to have. That's what Mm Mhm. sure all that kind of stuff just it's, it's, it's really sure. it's tough. You know, mm-hmm. it's new, I don't even know how they, you, know, mm-hmm. you know, I thought it was tough growing up in my time, in my era, era. Mhm. You know, sure. So Yeah, and every generation has those yeah. unique challenges yeah. That, that, yeah. They, that they face. And, and so I think that gives us all the more credence to let's hold to something that doesn't change. Right, and get on a one, you know, like yeah. you said, like get on a one and one and know it's
1: face-to-face,
0: right. and you can do the same thing as it's mm-hmm. you know, Yep, for absolutely, yep, okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's where we find the joy from, the true joy comes from. Sure. And it, it comes from Jesus, God. That's it. Uh, that's that, you know, we can have that happiness. We you know we can talk about happiness and joy. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. You know, John's here, his final words, he brings something all together. Mm-hmm. And he's saying, you know, where we may be, but we have that one goal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 that's a, that's a great element of the way John ends this. And, and I also love the fact that he ends with, your dear sister greets you. Yes. And to me, that's a reminder, hey, you're not alone in this. You know, you, you have connection. You may feel like you're isolated. You're the only ones who are dealing with this. No, know that you're not alone in this. All right, yeah, go ahead. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I know what I've always taught my kids. I know mm-hmm. what I believe. i am very strong at. But when that becomes a personal level, when that becomes a member of your family that they've mm-hmm. taken a turn, sure. who knows better right. and has gone that way,
1: you love them, mm-hmm.
0: you want to show that you love them, yep. how do you welcome them and that, uh, that other person? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, yeah, I... That's, that's getting all of it. I mean, this is not something I have ever thought was in our family. Sure. And there it is right in our lap. Mm-hmm. A person that you've loved all of their lives. Mm-hmm. How do you do that? How do you handle that? hmm My beliefs haven't changed. Right. My thoughts haven't changed. And if she asked, I would tell her exactly what the Bible says. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think you, you've named the challenge when you're in that circumstance uh, of someone who you know knows the truth and, and, and you know, has been raised in that, but they've chosen to depart from that and to embrace something else. Uh, I, I think you don't compromise what you believe. You don't. I, I, I think, I think in, in that case you express you're part of this family. You know, we want you to be part of the family, but understand there are some things that you have embraced in your life that we don't. And the decision on do you welcome them in, I think we always welcome people in. We we want to to remind them you're you're still part of the family. Uh, But the way you're living is not we don't fully accept that, or we don't accept it. And so, in a sense, when you are here, we're setting those things aside. We're gonna live as a family, as best we can. And I think in in a lot of those cases, that becomes a a very individualized thing, and and how we do that. Um, But I don't, I I think, you you made the statement, I don't want to compromise my beliefs, I don't want to compromise where I stand, and I think what I've also heard you say, you're right, exactly, and I think what I've also heard you say, or implied, I still love you, and I'm not going to compromise that. And so I think that we hold to the truth, and by holding to the truth, we still are not cutting them off, but we're expressing that love and that affection, but saying, I'm not going to compromise who I am and what I believe to be truth for accommodating where you're at and what you believe. And obviously, I think we continue to pray for them. I'm amazed at what God, through the Holy Spirit, does without ever asking me to have a hand in it. You know, there are a lot of times where I've finished preaching and somebody comes up and says, that's exactly what I needed to hear, and then tells me what they heard, and I think, that's not what I preached at all. (laughs) And to me, that's the evidence. The Holy Spirit is working in spite of what I think. So let me pray, and then uh, we will move on. Lord, thank you for this time together. May we hold to the truth, and Lord, may our holding to the truth always be seasoned by great love, a love that you've poured into us. Lord, even when we were astray, may we love one another as Jesus has loved us. We ask it in the name of Christ. Amen.